1872, the United States Supreme Court denied Myra Bradwell the right to practice law specifically because she was a woman. Ms. Bradwell apprenticed, passed the Illinois bar exam, and had support from legal professionals, but the decision to deny her the right to practice law rested on the idea that women were, quote, never contemplated, unquote, to be members of the bar. Things have changed since then, but not without the sacrifice and fortitude of female lawyers. In our first two seasons, we met with a dozen or so female jurists who talked about their backgrounds and paths to get on the bench. This season, we'll expand on those stories and interview lawyers throughout the state of Florida who are trailblazers in their practice areas and role models for male and female attorneys everywhere. Hello, welcome to Never Contemplated. I'm your host, Huddle Desai. During the course of this podcast, we've met with several judges who've experienced personal traumas and medical issues, including cancer. Cancer does not discriminate by gender or profession, and each survivor's story is unique. We heard from judges Nina Ashinafi and Kathy Sellers about how cancer impacted their lives both professionally and personally. Former Supreme Court Justice Barbara Pariente was also quite public with her experience. She continued to hear oral arguments and work on cases during and after treatment. In a news interview, she said, I'm here to tell you that not only is there life after breast cancer, but there is life during breast cancer. All three judges, Ashinafi, Sellers, and Pariente, worked during treatment. Justice Perrienti noted that being able to work on cases and opinions gave her a sense of normalcy. She also was a notorious planner and said that the cancer and the treatment made her much more understanding and that she didn't have to plan every minute of her life. Today's guest also has her own survival story. Alexis Fowler serves as the government relations director for the Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa. Ms. Fowler is a triple graduate from the University of Florida. She has worked in numerous government positions, including for the City of Jacksonville, the Attorney General's Office, the Lottery, the Florida Senate, and the Executive Office of the Governor. Welcome, Ms. Fowler, and thanks for joining us on Never Contemplated Today. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Now, before scheduling this podcast, we had never met, but I feel like I know you from following you on Twitter and your social media presence. For those of our listeners that don't um, follow you, let's start at the beginning. You are a native Floridian. Where did you grow up? I was born in Coral Gables, but grew up in Palm Beach Gardens. So you're a South Florida girl? South Florida born and bred. Yeah. And did you have any lawyers in your family? I do. My father. And what kind of firm did he have? He did civil and commercial litigation primarily. Uh-huh. And how about your mom? My mom was a stockbroker in Manhattan before my dad convinced her to move to Florida and marry him. Uh, and she briefly was a special education teacher. But when I was born, she left the workforce, became, oh. a, became a full-time volunteer and mom. Um, and you followed in her, into her volunteer foot, footsteps for sure. Absolutely. Um, we'll talk about that soon. But um, I want to go back to your childhood. When we were talking before the interview, you you like describe you're a self identified nerd, is what you said. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and you called yourself uh, a nerd in high school. Uh, where did you go to high school? I went to Suncoast High School, which is in Riviera Beach. It's a, a magnet school with uh, IB and STEM magnets in it. So. Everybody who went there uh, went voluntarily and had to apply, and it's uh, it's a it's a cradle for geekdom down in South Florida. And what kind of geek, geeky things did you do? I was very liberal artsy. I was very into debate and theater. Um, you know, I 
very much enjoyed the experience of going to a school full of nerds. And did you uh, already know at that point that you wanted to be an attorney? Yes. And why was that? Uh, genetic defect. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you ever go to, with your dad to his firm and see what he was doing? Yes. Yes. I saw different offices uh, throughout his career. Uh, and I also, uh, when I was in high school, it was right when teen court started. So I was in one of the first teen courts as a, you know, volunteer high school kid advocate. Um, that was one of my big community service projects when I was growing up. And teen court, for those of our listeners who who don't have kids or don't know, is where kids get disciplined at school and they can voluntarily go through like a people's court kind of thing where they're judged by their peers, right? Right. What position did you have? Were you an advocate or were I you did, a juror? I did, you know, prosecution and defense, uh-huh. which was a lot of fun. And, you know, honestly, the the volunteer attorneys from the local bar who came to those sessions every week taught me more of the rules of evidence than I learned in actual evidence class. <laughs> <laughs> I'm assuming you didn't go uh, to FSU and have Earhart, but... <laughs> no, I did not. <laughs> well, um, back to high school. So you were in drama and you ended up graduating from there and going to University of Florida, right? I did. Yeah. And you call yourself a triple graduate. I, uh, what I were do. your degrees that you get from University of Florida? I have an undergraduate degree in Spanish, a master's degree in education, and my law degree. And um, what made you want to go into Spanish? When I was very young, uh, I was fortunate to be around Spanish-speaking people uh, and had some really good Spanish teachers as a child. And when I got to UF, I really wasn't sure what I wanted to pursue as a major. I knew I was going to go to law school, and I knew I could major in anything and go to law school. But um, the Spanish department helped make a very large university much smaller. So I feel like I got the private college experience as well as the large university experience. Did you do any like summers abroad or I did. immersion programs? I did. I went to Spain for one summer. I lived uh, 75 miles northwest of Madrid in a town called Salamanca and went to a uh, an old university and took film and literature classes and traveled around Europe. It was the first time I'd set foot in Europe. So it was really interesting. And I know that you sometimes volunteer today to translate. Is that right? Yes. Where do you do that? So there's a Texas-based nonprofit called Faith and Practice, which sends volunteer medical teams to Guatemala. So I've done that for several years now. I go to – there's a actually a group of Franciscan friars who run this. It's an orphanage. Uh, it's a residential home for developmentally disabled adults whose families can't care for them, and they own – this uh, four ORs attached to a church in the middle of Antigua, Guatemala. So the team I go with is uh, general surgery. So they would do some women's care, um, a lot of ear, nose, and throat, uh, lots of tonsils, um, and uh, just you know, general quality of life surgery to help people get their quality of life back and become more self-sustainable. Uh, they fixed a lot the first couple of years I went, they were fixing a lot of that botched uh, mesh surgery on women who'd suffered some terrible, just awful dehumanizing side effects from those procedures. Well, that sounds horrible, but also rewarding to do. Oh, it's fantastic. I mean, especially being a translator and not being a medical person, 
you know, no one wants to feel like they're not being heard. No one wants to feel like they're not understood. And when you're in a position where you're talking to people who are complete strangers from another country and asking for help for something that significantly affects uh, your day-to-day life, you you need to have confidence that your words are being translated properly and that you're being heard and understood and that, you know, that person is speaking to you and treating you like the patient. You know, you're the client, you're the patient. And it's all as, as different as it is, it's very much similar to what I do in real life. How did you get involved in that? Uh, some friends uh, needed, uh, they needed translators and they knew that I was, uh, they knew that I was fluent. Well, getting back to your University of Florida days, mm-hmm. I know that you were in a sorority in mm-hmm. undergrad, but that you were also very active in Blue Key and mm-hmm. other activities. What kind of a college experience did you have in Gainesville? I loved it. Uh, the Greek system is a great way to get involved and to meet people. You know, I came from a high school graduating class with you know 290 people in it and was heading up to a university with 36,000 undergraduates. I, you know, I needed to make my own way and to also have a, a home base you know, throughout that experience, which really helped. Um, you know, and, and plus, it's just it's so important for young women to have girlfriends and you know, young women, all of us throughout mm-hmm. your life is so important for women to have strong relationships with other women, whether it's academic or cultural or faith based or whatever. You, know, you need women in your lives to just help you navigate all of this weirdness, you know, that is adulthood. I know, I know, you know, Judge Costello, who we've interviewed, and she talked about having friend tours. Yes. um, And how that sustained her through, through a lot of, a lot of times, but through law school and also through her practice. Absolutely. um, That is a good theme um, to talk about here. Um, So you went through University of Florida, but you didn't go immediately from undergrad to to law school. You actually got your master's in education. Tell Mm -hmm. us about that. I had taken a couple of courses and just really liked them. And, um, yeah, the, (laughs) I figured why not, you know, just, uh, I'd had some leftover scholarship money from Bright Futures and, and Florida prepaid. And I just really enjoyed the coursework and it was just a couple extra semesters. So why not? It, it wasn't a particularly strategic move, but it was learning for the sake of learning and it was fun. And what did you get out of that or any skills that helped you in law school? It influenced my perspective on the way people learn uh, and the way people teach. And a lot of what we do as attorneys involves educating the client on what the situation is and what the rules are and how things go. Um, so it was very helpful. Well, I know that after you graduated from University of Florida Law School, you pretty much have been in government practice since since the get-go. Pretty much. Uh, tell us about your uh, where you first started working. My first big kid job out of law school was as a fundraiser on Bill McCollum's attorney general's race. So that was 2006. Uh, so I graduated in 04. But right when I finished school, uh, we learned that my grandmother was terminally ill. Uh, and so I moved home and helped take care of her for that year until she died. She had she had cancer, she had heart disease, and she had dementia. So we had to give her the most dignified exit possible because she was the kind of woman who gave everything of herself for everyone else. So it was time for us to slow down and take care of her. And I'm really glad we did that. Um, 
so, you know, and, and she died in winter of 05. And, you know, I, I knew I needed to like move out of the house and go be a real person again. Uh, and I saw that Bill McCollum had announced his candidacy for attorney general. Well, I had his email address left over from when I was in school because he had been an alumni advisor to Florida Blue Key. And I shot him an email wishing him good luck and telling him if he needed someone to, you know, hang signs or knock on doors for him that I was happy to do it because he'd always been so good to us as students. And the next day I got a phone call from the campaign offering me a job. That's amazing. When you were you were in South Florida taking care of your grandmother. Yes. And then did you have to move up to Tallahassee for the campaign? I moved to Orlando for the campaign, uh, which was you know my first time being in Orlando for more than a couple of days. More uh, than Disney World. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you uh, start on the campaign, which kind of starts you on your track to yes. higher things. Tell mm-hmm. us about working eventually at the attorney general's office. So McCollum won the AG's race, which was really exciting. I'm sure that was due wholeheartedly to you. <laughs> it had absolutely nothing to do with his decades of service and you know, name ID or anything like that. No, uh, so I, I go into the AG's office and I'm a baby lawyer. And uh, you know, first, you know, I mean I get to I get to meet all these interesting people who've been practicing for a long time. And the AG's office is kind of like law nerd Disneyland. Because there's civil, there's criminal, there's political stuff. Uh, there's, there's administrative. Yes, there's administrative. There's finance. There's you know, there's a million different areas of the law that are you know, that are practiced in that agency, and you can learn uh, from a lot of people who are the subject matter expert in that area. And you know, you you deal with the the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune when it comes to the legislature and and whatever's happening, you know, in in the capital. But then you also have you know, Medicaid fraud and cybercrime and, you know, and the administrative practice and, you know, and, and all the litigation that the AG does for other government entities uh, in and around the Capitol. Did you specialize in something? I know you did. Yeah. So I became uh, McCollum's sunshine lawyer, uh, open records, open meetings, you know, which is, I mean, it's enshrined in our constitution in Florida. Uh, it's, it's a literal constitutional right here. And Especially with you know, government outsources so much, uh, and and uh, so the, the public records laws have a really sweeping application uh, you know, across a number of disciplines. Not the least of which is you know practicing law as a government lawyer. You need to be very mindful of what you put in writing and in a fixed, tangible medium because it's not just discoverable. It's you know it's open to the public. So, what kind of work did you do? I counseled uh, uh, local governments and media entities about, you know, what the entitlements were, what the responsibilities were. I mediated a lot of disputes between extremely angry people and extremely frustrated people. Uh, And a lot of times they actually wanted the same thing, but they were just communicating on the wrong wavelength and they needed a third party to tell them to cut it out and, you know, and listen to each other. Right. Well, um, I guess that's how you got into working for the city of Jacksonville. Yes. City of Jacksonville had just elected its first ever black mayor. Uh, the, the press was incredibly hostile toward him. And uh, he had some open records difficulties uh, when he first took office. And uh, they hired me to come sort that out for them. 
which was it was uh, that was a, a very interesting administration because the mayor was a Democrat, but he was a very conservative Democrat and his administration was shocking purple. Uh, big time Democrats and big time Republicans all got together as sort of the team of rivals to make this administration work. And there was a huge pension reform issue. Uh, there were problems in the local public school system. There were problems with, uh, you know, with crime. You know, there, there were just there were big issues facing the city, and there were people. You know, I mean, Jacksonville, in terms of landmass, is the largest city of in America. Uh, but it's really a series of neighborhoods that were smushed together by force of law, and they have to work things out and provide services and keep facilities running and, you know, make sure make sure things work from one end of the town to the other. Well, I know that you um, you were talking about working with different personalities, um, red, blue, purple. And I know that you've worked for the Florida Constitution Revision Commission and the Reapportionment Committee. I'm sure that there are a lot of personalities, different types of personalities, regardless of party yes. on those. Uh, what did you learn or what can you tell us about working as a staff attorney mm -hmm. for a group of people like that? Well, there, there's two important things about working for those kinds of things, uh, reapportionment and CRC. You travel the state and have uh, public hearings at different you know, public venues, you know, from, from Pensacola to the Keys, and you meet a wide range of personality types. I mean, there's always the handful of professional protesters who show up and read whatever talking points they got texted on their way in the door. But the actual, you know, good faith citizens wandering in because they're curious or have an issue, you know, you learn about the, the, the problems and the issues that people are facing in different places of the state. Clewiston has different issues than Pensacola Beach. Now, uh, I mean, North Miami and South Miami have different problems. Uh, you know, West Palm Beach and Pahokee are two very different places that are geographically not that far apart when you think about it. Uh, and, it, you know, and, and learning how, you know, those regional differences and those regional populations have different needs. Well, um, what was it like working for the committee members is really what my question. The committee members <laughs> were colorful. Uh, I had some, I had some wonderful people. I staffed the, I was the staff director for general provisions. So the chairman of that committee uh, was Jackie Thurlow Lippish, who was from uh, uh, Martin County. She was a former mayor, uh, former teacher, big time environmentalist. Um, and, uh, you know, there were, you know, uh, on my committee, I had, I had Brecht Hutchin, I had Fred Karlinski, I had, um, uh, well, she was then representative Jeanette Nunez. She's now Lieutenant governor. Uh, but you know, really interesting people with a, a broad, uh, base, you know, broad backgrounds, really interesting perspectives. And, uh, it was fun. It was fun to get to know them because people on that commission had done all kinds of amazing things. Um, and, and to see them agree and disagree on, on different issues, you know, cause there were, you know, on CRC, there were the commissioners who were very much that the state constitution is a sacred document, you know, and we're not here to, to blow it up and, and add things to it, you know. And then there were the people who were like, well, if it's popular and the people want it, let's do it. And so there was a, 
I think, a, an important and good discussion between those two factions uh, about the merits of each side. And, you know, there was zealous advocacy in defense of either side. And they got to have that discussion out in public, you know, and, and you don't get to see that all that often. For attorneys thinking about doing that kind of government work, what can they expect and why would they want to do it? It's some of the purest policy work you can do as an attorney. Um, and, you know, it will teach you a, a lot about client management. <laughs> You're just going to leave it at that. I'm going to leave it at that. <laughs> okay. I want to switch gears before we get to your current position. And I want to ask you some very personal questions about your experience with cancer, but also right after that, the death of your husband, Gene Fowler. And I want to break it down. How did you first find out that you had cancer? Where were you? What were you working? What were you doing? So I was working for Governor Scott in his legal office, which was a fantastic place to work. Um, and I just, I woke up one morning and I was exhausted and nauseated and I didn't know why. And I was a very active person. I was one of those crazy people who went to the gym flipping tires and parking lots, you know, four <laughs> days a week. I was big into power yoga. You know, I was I was a very active person. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I was just wrecked. Uh, and, I, and I didn't know why. And I, I felt that way. First, I thought it was food poisoning for a couple of days, but I couldn't figure out what I had eaten that would do that. Uh, so after about a week, I went to just a primary care and was like, am, am I like mentally ill? Like, what is going on here? And they immediately sent me to a GI specialist who booked me for the next colonoscopy, which was, I went in on Thursday. They booked me for 6 a.m. on Monday. And I called my parents and I was like, oh, you know, technically I'm going to be legally incompetent after I have this procedure because they give you all these painkillers. Uh, to, to, you know, to put you in twilight mode. I was like, so can you guys just come down and like drive me home? I'm sure it's nothing, but we'd figure it out. And, you know, I go in for the procedure and it was not nothing. It was stage three cancer, uh, which was just a complete shock and not what I was prepared for at all. So your family is with you. Mm -hmm. I know, um, Justice Periente, when she talks about having cancer and going through treatment, she talks about her court family. Who were your people that came immediately and supported you during your diagnosis and then the treatment? Uh, you know, first, you know, I, I went to work the next day and had to tell my coworkers because I you know, figured things were about to change fairly quickly. And I have to say the first person I told was Meredith Sasso who was wonderful and just the first words out of her mouth were, how can I help? And then the next person I told was Dan Nordby, who basically, who almost fell over. Like he stumbled and had to like stop himself on the desk to keep from actually, he's just so completely gobsmacked. And he said, no, how can we help? What can we do? And I said, I want to have the most normal possible life while going through this. I want to work. I want to participate in this office. I don't want to squander this opportunity. You know, I want to be here. And he said, okay. And we did. We, you know, we litigated, we prepared for, you know, a crazy election cycle. You know, we did all the same things we would have done. I just had a port inserted in my chest and carried around my chemotherapy in a crossbody bag the whole time. And how are you feeling at, during this? 
the chemo wasn't as bad in this stage because I was getting a tiny dose administered every hour over the course of a week. And I would just change the cartridge every Monday morning. Uh, the radiation was physically tiring. Uh, and you know, it's, uh, it's a nasty sunburn and it does physically, you know, drain you. But uh, I was always able, I mean, I, I never missed work unless I was having surgery that day. And I, you know, I felt good, but you know, I was also energized about my job. I was energized about my work and I loved the people I worked with and everyone in that office treated me like the same as before, uh, which is what I wanted. I didn't want to be treated like the sick person. Well, I know that other judges that we've talked to talk about how they continued to work when they could and that it helped them like stay kind of normal, felt like things were in their control. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about how female attorneys, probably all attorneys, like to be in control mm -hmm. and that you have to learn to get let go at this point. Yes. Uh, tell us about that. But, you know, I enjoyed, yeah, I enjoyed the work because I enjoyed the work, but I also knew there's only so much HGTV that you can watch. <laughs> Uh, and, you know, and you, know, you, at some point you do run out of Netflix. I mean, I, you know, there was, there was a time when I physically, you know, after, cause I had surgery in February and I needed, uh, eight weeks to physically recover from that. Cause that was seriously invasive surgery, you know, and that's when I worked my way through every Israeli soap opera on Netflix and, you know, every Mexican novella, you know, all, all of the, you know, I had like the international house of, of streaming TV. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think lawyers in general like to like to have a plan and like to be in control, but you know, you also have to learn how to let go and actually just heal from these things that happen to you. Well, eventually you do heal mm -hmm. and you have recovered from the cancer, but it does leave some some scars and oh sure emotionally and physically can you talk to a little bit about that i mean physically you know my, my bikini days are over <laughs> you know but also uh i'm you know i don't have the same physical strength that i did before uh, that's just something i have to live with it was very you know the thing i wasn't prepared for was i thought i was going to finish my last dose of chemo throw a scarf on my head go to the gym and be the exact same athlete i was before i got sick that was not the case and, you know, learning to appreciate what I could do um, and building on what I could do, you know, becoming stronger, it's a it's a much slower process. And that's very humbling for someone who, you know, I mean, who liked to, to get out and be extremely active. Um, but, you know, and, and emotionally, there is this uh, this thing where, you know, because going through cancer it was, you know, tunnel vision and I'm going to get through this and I'm going to handle this and then it'll be over. And then when it is over, you have to stop and think like, what, okay, what now? You know, cause your whole life revolves around keeping everything as much like before as it was while also doing treatment. But when the treatment element is out, you know, there is this sort of, you know, like, uh, just, just kind of looking around and just complete and utter confusion. Well, we we kind of talked about this before the interview, but at this point, you're not you're not thinking about dating. Oh God, no! <laughs> but you do meet someone. I do. Yeah, I kind of remet. I remet a law school classmate. Uh, uh, well, you know, we had known each other, but we were just friends, and we had 
talked a few times, you know, we, we talked while I was going through treatment, um, but it was purely as just a, you know, a friend checking up on a friend. And then uh, he wound up moving to Tallahassee. To, and he is. Uh, Gene. Gene yeah. Fowler. Yes. Yeah. He'd gone to law school together. Um, and he was a tax attorney. He'd practiced in D.C. and San Francisco. But he wanted to, you know, he was done with big law and wanted to hit the reset button on his life. So he moved to Tallahassee and took a, a clerkship at the first DCA, which was right near where I lived at the time. So, you know, we just kind of reconnected purely as friends. Uh, and then all of a sudden we were more than friends. And I'm like, you do realize that I am a five alarm dumpster fire. <laughs> like, <laughs> And why know. do you think that? Because you were recovering from your treatment? Or oh, I because... was still bald. Oh, yeah. Okay. I was still, so, yeah, I was still wearing scarves and wigs. I had like big scars on, you know, all over. And, you know, I just didn't look like I did before, you know. Uh-huh. So, you know, I, it hadn't even occurred to me that anyone was even looking at me in, you know, a romantic sort of way. And then all of a sudden he was. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> um, well, you meet and then. Fall in love. Yes. And just in time for a pandemic, (laughs) which, you know, amazing timing on that one. Um, But we, yeah, we eloped because there was no, you know, when you're, you know, we were at the age where, you know, I've never had a fantasy wedding. No, I had a fantasy honeymoon, but not a fantasy (laughs) wedding, which I never got to take the honeymoon. But, you know, I'll have to take that trip myself sometime. But, uh, no, I never had a fantasy wedding and, you know, and I just, you know, maybe I just watched too many Nora Ephron movies, but <laughs> when you meet the person you want to spend the rest of your life with, you want the rest of your life to start as soon as possible. So like, let's just go elope and do this. Let's do the paperwork. And then, you know, we can take the trips and have the adventures and focus on that going forward. Well, I am obviously not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but do you think that the experience of having cancer and losing that control made you more more likely to jump in full um, head I'm sure head. I'm sure uh, you know because that's one thing about going through cancer uh listening to what people complain about I have to uh be mindful that you know while they you know this thing they're complaining about might be completely stupid uh they don't think that is so you know I have to give people grace on that but I also knew I wasn't going to sit around and, you know, obsess about floral arrangements or, you know, signature colors that just, yeah, I mean, I, the dress I got married in was an off the rack sundress that fit kind of, and, um, you know, I wanted to be in and out of there. You know, I, I think the whole process took like 15 minutes. Um, I just, you know, there was no way I was going to go do a say yes to the dress kind of thing and, you know, contemplate mermaid versus ball gown versus whatever. Right. Um, so you end up together, staying until mm-hmm. Tallahassee, both working. It's during the pandemic, so you're both working at home, I presume. Yes. And um, and this sounds idyllic for a new married couple. Oh, it's great. Yeah. And and then what happens? So we um. <laughs> We decide to, uh, in the spirit of, you know, just utter ridiculousness, we buy this fixer-upper house together, which, you know, was uh, which was a lot more fixer than upper <laughs> once we get there. 
we haven't even entirely unpacked our boxes, but uh, one morning he wakes up and uh, he's coughing really hard and struggling to breathe. And I, you know, he's sweating from head to toe. And I thankfully just said, you know, the, it, there was just something about it that was so wrong that I immediately just grabbed my phone and called 911. And I got him out of bed. I got him into the living room, sitting down. And, uh, you know, while on the phone with the 911 dispatcher, I lost his pulse. And uh, the EMTs arrived within, I don't know, I mean, less than five minutes. You know, they were very quick. Uh, and they tried to revive him on the living room floor, weren't getting anywhere. So they took him to the ER, but I couldn't go with him because of the pandemic rules. So he leaves in the ambulance and I called my parents and I was like, Gene just left in an ambulance. I think he's having a heart attack. And they were just, you know, I was like, I couldn't go with no. And of course they don't know what to say because who would. And then, you know, I called a couple of friends and told them the same thing, you know, and one of them just said, you know, what do you think is happening? I was like, I don't know. But like, I mean, did I just become a widow? Am I standing here just waiting for no? And then the policeman walked in the door and told me that they couldn't revive him. Oh. So, you know, it just, it was so completely absurd and so just utterly nonsensical that it's like I couldn't even react because, you know, 43-year-old men are not supposed to die of heart attacks. I'm so sorry. Um, what do you do after that? Uh, how do you recover? Bits and pieces. Uh, people will send a lot of books about grief, and almost all of them are garbage. <laughs> <laughs> well, what is helpful? Let uh, uh, One thing that's really good is uh, going outside and taking a walk. You need fresh air. You need sunshine. You need a massage. You need a shower. You need yummy smelling bath products. Uh, you need food. Um, you need someone else to help with the logistics around the house. Like I just, you know, the thought of doing a load of laundry was just like, eh, no. And did no. your friend, I'm sure your friends. My can friends descended like the Marines, uh, my one friend had found a dry erase board somewhere in a, in a garage or someplace and had, uh, you know, just a day-to-day -day schedule of who was going to come stay with me, who was going to deliver food. He, I mean, there was my, my living room looked like the international house of funeral food. Uh, I, I mean, people I hadn't seen in years were just like showing up with giant casserole dishes and saying things like, I don't know what to say. So here, and it was like a vat of angel chicken. <laughs> Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, the, the kindness, if you're going to have your entire life blow up six ways to Sunday, Tallahassee is a great place for that to happen. You know, I always joke that, uh, the great thing about living in a small town is if you don't know what you're doing, the junior league does. <laughs> and, uh, and they did, I mean, the network just blew up, uh, within minutes and, you know, they, they bring food. One of them called a handyman and had everything fixed, you know, around the house. One of my friends came over and had her kids were really into planting gardens. Her kids like redid landscaping on my front lawn. Um, you know, you've got to, um, you know, I mean, it was it was an embarrassment of just riches in terms of, of friendships and relationships and the the just care that people showed it was really unbelievable. Well, it's what you needed and. Oh yeah. And those people have 
have been there, you know, oh, yeah. you built those relationships. Yeah. Over many, many years. Yeah. But you no, know, and what, you no, know, it was, it was tremendous. Uh, the, the judge who Jean clerked for. So, you know, judge, uh, Jean started at the first DCA and eventually left to clerk for John Stargell, who was on the second at the time. Uh, judge Stargell came to our house and brought dinner for me and my family and just sat and hung out with us for a little while. You know, and the people who did, you know, uh, Judge Nordby just came to the house and hung out for a little while. You know, the people who, you know, there are some people who are amazing cooks. There are some people who are laundry ninjas. There are people who are who are organization mavens. Uh, and, and all that stuff is really wonderful. But it was also just as wonderful and important. The people who just came to hang out. Yeah. Well, this is all happening. And you go through all this stuff. But in the interim, you also put forward a bill that changes the gift laws in Florida. <laughs> In the middle of all all of this, from the cancer and and your husband passing, tell us about the bill and how, why it was needed. So while I was sick, uh, I had very good insurance coverage, but cancer is a rich man's disease, and I am neither rich nor a man. And the gift ban, while well intentioned, and I don't I think we can all agree that bribery is bad. Um, the effects of that law had this unintended consequence on state workers uh, going through you know, cancer and catastrophic illness. So I was very fortunate. Uh, then Senator Rob Bradley and then Representative Jer Williamson, both of whom are from you know, areas where I don't live and don't have family, uh, proposed this bill to create a, you know, an exception for uh, people suffering from catastrophic injury or illness from the gift ban. Because, you know, uh, technically, you know, you're an employee of the executive branch. I mean, someone who works for an entity that lobbies your area of government can't buy you a cup of coffee without violating that law. And, you know, cancer patients in particular can't do anything. I mean, I physically... You know, so your friends who are lobbyists who want to give you things right. because you are sick. Or and I because, was turning it away. And you had to turn it away. And that's ridiculous. You know, it shouldn't be, um, you know, I mean, my friend who was a paralegal for a law firm that had offices in Tallahassee and lobbied the governor's office. You know, meanwhile, I was an attorney at the lottery. Like there were a million degrees of separation. You know, the governor... Now, I mean, Governor DeSantis has no idea who I am, and he has no reason to. Now, I was not, you know, it's not like I was picking up the phone and calling my boy and telling him what to do. Like, mm -hmm. that was, that relationship was not there. Uh, and, uh, the, you know, for me, I had really good coverage, and I, you know, was, uh, you know, and I was making a decent salary. But, you know, the average state worker is making 40-something thousand dollars a year. And I just kept thinking, what about, you know, the, the stay-at-home mom with three kids whose husband is that, you know, $44,000 a year state worker? What if that guy dies? You know, who's going to pay the mortgage? Who's going to put gas in the car? Who's, I mean, just the mortgage, the utilities, the basic, uh, the basic functionality of life. You know, what do you do? Um, and so, you know, that loophole needed to be there. So we, you know, 
rallied the troops and advocated for it. Uh, it passed the Senate, but died in the House. The clock ran out. Uh, there's nothing nefarious about it at all. But, uh, you know, and then the pandemic happened and then my husband died. So, uh, you know, I'd like to to put the bill forward again, particularly post-pandemic, because I think a lot of people didn't get the diagnostic screenings that they should have. I think there'll be a lot more people who are going to find themselves in a more advanced state of illness than they, you know, maybe they would have been st stage one, but now they're stage three uh, because they, you know, they skipped the mammogram because, you know, they were teaching school and keeping house and working full time and didn't make time for themselves. Well, that brings us kind of full circle mm -hmm. from your volunteering with the doctors in Guatemala and your, your own experience with the healthcare system. Well, tell us what you do for Moffitt. So I'm in-house counsel to their government relations department. And how did you get that position? A friend of a friend called me up and said they were looking for an attorney to be, you know, in-house with their government. So they need someone who has political background, but also, you know, agency experience and regulatory knowledge. You know, you should apply for this job. And, you know, I mean, I had heard of Moffitt, but uh, I knew it had a wonderful reputation so I, you know, just threw my hat into the ring to see what happens. And it just happened to go my way. And at this point, where are you in Tallahassee? Are you? Yeah, I'm in Tallahassee. Um, you know, I was, I mean, I did the one interview over Zoom while cleaning out the house to get it ready to sell. Uh, after, after Gene after, Yeah, so after Gene died, yeah, because it was way too much house. It was way too many projects. And I was just like, I have to get out of this place. Like, there's no, I love the neighborhood. I love the area. But I, I just, I needed to take, you know, a good year to simplify and to get, just pare down all the stuff. Uh, and I think anyone who's gone through widowhood or a major crisis should do the same thing. Uh you know, get rid of as many complications as possible and just simplify so that, you know, you can you can add more excitement to your life in phases as you go. Uh, but, you know, you just you can't uh, you can't overcomplicate your life while you're trying to recover from from trauma. So you're cleaning out your house, you're interviewing for a new job mm -hmm. <laughs> and you end up getting it. I do. And tell us what you do. So I kind of have one foot in each world, you know, with legal and with, uh, so government relations is the lobbying wing of the cancer center. Uh, Moffitt is an instrumentality of government. It was created by statute. Uh, it is, uh, I did know, not know that. Yeah, it is. Uh, so it's an NCI national cancer Institute, uh, cancer center of excellence. And it does tremendous research, uh, as well as treatment, of cancer. It was, you know, created for the purpose of, of, of prevention and cure of cancer. Uh, we are now expanding up into, you know, I mean, there's centers and facilities around Tampa. We're now moving up into Pasco County, creating this big life sciences center and park, which will be larger than downtown Tampa. It will have startups and research and, uh, and treatment, uh, just, you know, unfortunately, uh, there's plenty of cancer to go around in Florida, but Moffitt in particular has become a, a destination for cancer treatment uh, and some of the best clinical trials. I mean, and it was, you know, while I was interviewing for the job, 
I was said, no, I did a clinical trial while I was sick. It made a huge, I was treated at university of Florida and I chose that in a largely because there was a clinical trial for uh, my illness using a drug that was extremely expensive and incredibly effective in uh, patients with lung cancer. And that clinical trial drug dramatically improved my quality of life when I was otherwise physically just, you know, pretty beaten down. So I had a, you know, you I didn't had, get the placebo. No, I didn't, no, there was, there was no placebo in this study. Uh, we asked cause I was not going to be driving back and forth to go get a sugar pill. But uh, no, I mean, those clinical trials not only save lives for people in the future, but it, you know, it was a huge plus for me at the time. Uh, and particularly since I wanted to get off the couch and go do things, um, it, it really helped and I really appreciated it. Well, I want to um, touch back on something that you said. You you mentioned the Junior League and mm -hmm. how they, they came to your rescue. Absolutely. Um, I know that you've been involved in the Junior League for a long time. Tell mm -hmm. us what the junior league is. So it's a an international organization of uh, organized women volunteers. Uh, it began in New York city uh, and it has, you know, spread all over the place. The, the league in Tallahassee, well, the, the junior leagues around Florida, which go from Pensacola all the way down, uh, you know, do organized philanthropic projects, particularly as it relates to uh, women and children. Uh, and it's very, um, it's not political, it's food, clothing, uh, literacy, uh, you know, food deserts, uh, it's basic quality of life issues for you know, diaper banks are a big thing, particularly in the last few years. Mm -hmm. Uh, when my mother was in the league, when I was a kid, she, uh, loved, uh, it was a project called INER alert that the junior league of the Palm beaches still does. I'm told. Uh, to help uh, screen for uh, hearing and, and visual uh, disabilities for kids going into school. And, you know, it, it's so just, it's not like the Mad Men no. version of women like no. sitting around smoking cigarettes. No, it's, it's not the help. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I mean, and there's a time and place for, you know, sitting around having cocktails and looking super pretty. But these are also the type of women who will roll up their sleeves and, you know, it's, it's, it's corporal works of mercy, you know, food, shelter, you know, do you need sneakers? Where are the diapers? You know, where, where are the basic things that you need to, to live with dignity and raise your family uh, in, in this community? Well, what other, um, besides the junior league, I know that you are involved in some professional professionalism things. Mm -hmm. uh, what are you active in? Well, you know, I, uh, a couple times I've been called on by my friends at the bar to discuss some uh, professionalism topics. Just, it's amazing how a little bit of professionalism goes a long way. How, and regardless of where you practice, big city, small town, uh, you know, people might not remember exactly your specialization or exactly what firm you work for, but they'll remember how you treated them when you interact with them, whether it's in a professional setting or a social setting. Um, so I, you know, I think that stuff is, is really important. Um, I'm also active in uh Federalist Society, which is that they always just have really interesting programming and great speakers. And it's, uh, the debate is really interesting to watch. 
Well, I don't want to keep you any longer. One of the reasons why I wanted to interview you and your name got floated around was because you have such a positive outlook, even after everything you've gone through. But I think you had it before then. Um, and you have, you're on social media. You're so funny. Thank you. <laughs> um, but what gives, what do you think gives you that outlook and why is it important for lawyers to kind of not take themselves so seriously? There's plenty of things in the world to take seriously. And as lawyers, there are, you know, we interact with more of those than a lot of other career fields. But it's important to laugh and it's important to have a good time. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's good for your mental and your physical health. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's just, you know, I, I mean, I jokingly refer to myself as the Joan Rivers of widowed cancer survivors. <laughs> But, you know, it, you've, you've got to laugh, you know, and, and you have to take the time to laugh at things. I mean, what a, what a pathetic existence it must be to just be humorless and constantly seeking to be offended by everything. I mean, you know, sometimes you just see people, especially on the Internet, and it's like, oh, I bet you're a blast at parties. <laughs> you know, all the parties you're not invited to because you're insufferable. Well, before we leave, I want to ask you one um, last question. If you had a piece of advice for a, a new lawyer what would it be? Uh, the ability to read the room is as important as the ability to read the law. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. I want to thank you so much <laughs> for your you. time. I'm going to have to get my tissue out. Um, thank you so much. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. It was you. a lot of fun. I want to thank Clay Shaw, Katie Young, Rebecca Bandy, and Sapphire Austin from the Florida Bar for keeping us on the air. If you'd like more stories about the lawyers who have gone through cancer treatment or you'd like to follow Alexis Fowler on social media, check out the links below the posting of this episode. Don't forget to grab the CLE number for this episode also.